Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me all right? <laughs> My gain, your loss. Welcome to you all. Uh, it is a joy to be with you on this beautiful morning. A lot of the humidity has gone away, so we have a beautiful summer day before us. But it is a joy to be with you all and to see you all here at this conference. Uh, the whole question of restoring the divine plan for marriage and the family is an important one. Uh, the topic that I've been given, the joy of love, the family as a domestic church, is also, I think, a very important topic, a foundational one. But what I'd like to do before I jump right into that is begin by laying a foundation. And I'd like to start this morning by reflecting with you, by offering a couple of questions for you to think along with me. Why do we all love weddings? I know women like them better than men, but <laughs> everyone likes a wedding. Why do we love weddings so much? Why is it that marriages move us so very much. Now, if you are married, I'd like you to close your eyes just for a moment and remember your own wedding, just briefly. Think of that day. What, some of you are smiling, that's good. Why is it that when a wedding celebrating marriage, why is it that a wedding that really celebrates marriage is unlike anything else in life? There's nothing like it. Now, I, like many of you here, have been to many, many weddings. One of my great joys as being president of Christendom College, and this July 12th, I'll actually be marking 25 years as president of Christendom College, proof that God does have a sense of humor. Uh, but one of my great joys as president of Christendom is to have attended many Christendom weddings. I attend them whenever I can, and I can honestly say every wedding I've gone to, I've always find them very, very moving. Just this summer, I attended a beautiful Christendom wedding over in Ireland. Just last week, I was in upstate New York for another Christendom wedding. So let us reflect together on the why of this reality. Why are we so moved by this experience? But you have a young man with his bride standing together on the threshold, and they're ready to begin an entirely new life together, to participate in what truly is the great adventure of life. Their presence allows us all to see and to touch in some ways and to experience something that breathes of eternity. Their union recalls those who have walked this path before. That's why their parents are there. And in many instances, grandparents as well are present for this event the life's blood that is flowing through their veins at that great moment bears that same life, that same tradition, that inseparable link with the past that we're all connected to. Everyone in that church knows that they are there and they exist because a man and a woman became one flesh. As an Irish farmer's wife, who in the recent tragic referendum in Ireland put up a big sign in front of her farm in which she affirmed a great truth, and that sign simply said, two bulls can't make a herd. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> but let's continue with our reflection together. How beautiful it really is to see that moment in a wedding when aged grandparents are being escorted down the aisle slowly with dignity, like kings and queens, almost with a sense of veneration. And if you look at them as they're coming down the aisle, those sort of wise eyes, you know, the smile that is on the faces, you can see in their presence that they too are recalling their own wedding day 
when they too stood before God's sacred altar and they exchanged vows as a young bride and groom, and that is still vividly present to them. How joyful the faces of the best man and the maid of honor at that event as they witness the sacrament and with eager longing hope that they too will one day stand before that very same altar. For they too are beckoned by that unseen guest who draws all men and women to the love of his great heart. How beautiful it is to always see the mother of the bride who once held her daughter in her arms as a newborn babe. And that babe who gave indescribable joy to that young mother's beating heart, who now experienced expectation and suffering transformed into joy, unspeakable joy. Now she beholds her daughter wearing her veil before the great altar of sacrificial love. What a gift from heaven to behold a father walking his daughter down the aisle giving life and a future to another young man. Or perhaps, as in my case, more frequently, it's the father looking at his son. Six boys, three girls, all right. But then remembering the little boy he threw a football to for the first time and helped to ride a bike for the very first time without training wheels. Look, Dad, I'm doing it. Now you see a young man ready to take his place, united to the generations that all went before him. Their love in this sacramental union, which mirrors the union of Christ and his church, is grounded in him. It is grounded in their Savior. So much so that when the harsh realities of the vows are said, from this day forward, for better or for worse, right? for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, doesn't trouble them, for they know they're going to walk their path with him. Truly, Christian marriage is one of the most beautiful things in the world which God has given us. It spans the ages, it spans the generations, and allows us to touch eternity and to glimpse, even momentarily, the face of God, who is love. A young man delighting in his bride, a young woman willing to give herself completely to the one that she loves. And of course, always, at every wedding, there is a sweet bouquet of roses left at the Virgin Mother's feet, who will always watch over her daughter and son with the inexhaustible love of a mother. This gift from God, my friends, is the foundation of our society. It is sacred. It is holy. It is received. It is this union in the flesh of man and woman, this great mystery, this great sacrament. It is something that is a gift that is received. It is not ours to manipulate or to try to redefine in some way. And how the devil hates it. The devil hates the incarnation of God. The devil hates children. He hates innocence. He hates beauty. A priest who assisted Father Amorth, the famous exorcist in Rome, would perform thousands of exorcisms in a 30-year career, said, told us that the devil hates and attacks the family through divorce, ideologies, lifestyles, contraception, individualist thinking. He wants to destroy it. The attacks on family please the devil. And he said, because he knows that a man who is alone without any point of reference is unstable and can be manipulated. 
what a tribute to wives and to women. Now, some would say that this vision that I've just brought forth is an ideal. Of course it is. Love is always, love is always idealistic. As St. John Paul the Great once said, a person who cannot love forever can scarcely love for a single day. Love by its nature is idealistic. As Christians, as Catholics, we are all called to the high standard of ordinary Christian living and what it means to be a believing Catholic in today's society. The ideal can be and always has been found in the real. It's starting to make me feel very old now as I begin to recall certain things that I grew up in a country in my youth where abortion was illegal. That's not some pie-in-the-sky fantasy. When I grew up, abortion was illegal in this country. I grew up in a country where it was illegal, where contraception was something for prostitutes. Where divorce was rare and frowned upon. And even in difficult marriages that were struggling, you stayed together for the sake of the children. That was common. Where pornography was dirty and disgusting. Where religion was a good thing. And the family was important to everybody, even to the government. How things have changed in one generation. I remember the story of a young teenage boy who went up to his grandfather and asked, Grandpa, what did you have to put on in order to have safe sex? To which the grandfather, somewhat saddened by the question, responded simply, a wedding ring. I'm also starting to feel old because I have lived through and in seven pontificates now. Some of them pretty long, all right? Seven pontificates. And of course, all of them have had their strengths and their weaknesses. In Amoris Laetitiae, Pope Francis told us all in a neglected passage, and there's a lot of neglected passages in that document that don't get talked about, unfortunately. He said, and I quote, today, more important than the pastoral care of failures is the pastoral effort to strengthen marriages and thus to prevent their breakdown. Unfortunately, that's not what seems to be happening in most of our discussions today, but I would like to heed the Holy Father's words and make a small contribution to that effort by speaking of the family as a domestic church. There's no doubt as we look around a contemporary society that family and marriage is under severe attack. Our late Holy Father, Pope St. John Paul II, made the family a central element in his teaching pontificate. Benedict XVI continued that great tradition, emphasizing the central role that the family plays. Pope Francis, in his pontificate as well, has continued to emphasize the importance of the family. Now, I believe the key to the church's teaching on marriage and family and its role in society lies in the family's identity as a church in miniature, as a domestic church. The ancient title that we find in the Fathers of the Church, an Ecclesia Domestica. Now, that term, Ecclesia Domestica, the church in the home, was brought forth again in the teachings of the Second Vatican Council in Lumen Gentium number 11 and also in Gaudium et Spes number 48. It also occupies a very key position in the catechism of the Catholic Church. If you read numbers 1655 to 1658, which should be read by everyone, there is a beautiful treatment of the importance of the family understanding itself as a church in miniature. All other discussions of its priestly, prophetic, uh, and kingly roles, including its role as the, being the foundation of society, stem from this key fundamental theological concept. We live in an age in which we have to restate the obvious and reaffirm that because we lost our sense of the obvious. 
very good friend of the college, Cardinal Francis Orenzi, who's going to be with us next April at our gala celebrating our 40th anniversary. He used to always say, and I love to quote him, I do a little bit of a Orenzi imitation, so if you'll bear with me. <laughs> the one thing we know about common sense, it is not very common today. <laughs> and that is true. But St. John Paul II stated bluntly that civilization depends on the family. In a very real sense, the future of humanity is at stake in this battle. And there are so many alarming signs revealing a severe moral crisis that are being set forth which deny a proper understanding of marriage and family. And these signs point how far we have fallen. And as Catholics, it is especially important that we remember and not let the press manipulate, we remember the continuity that is found in papal teaching, as Cardinal Mueller has shown on repeated occasions. Sadly, there have in many instances been a failure to manifest these truths about the family, and this has affected family life, especially in the first world today, here in the United States, Canada, and in Europe. There's been an almost total failure in communicating these truths about marriage and family. And this has not been a failure of family. In many ways, our own church has failed to communicate effectively and faithfully papal and conciliar teaching concerning the family. And this failure is oftentimes led to the widespread failure that we see in so many of our families to become what they really are. Now, as the Second Vatican Council taught us and our late Pope, John Paul the Great, said, modern culture has to be led to a more profoundly restored covenant with divine wisdom. Because culture can't exist without God. There can be no real culture apart from the worship of God. It means we've got to get back to the wisdom of God, His plan. We've got to get back to His design which is reflected even in the natural created order. How many Catholics in our country, if we're honest, have ever even heard of the term domestic church or even think of themselves as a family, as a domestic church? Now, the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, beautiful, more abbreviated document, promulgated by Pope Benedict XVI, gives us a great little definition of what we mean by a domestic church. It's in number 350 in the compendium, and I share that with you today. This is what it says. The Christian family is called the domestic church because the family manifests and lives out the communal and familiar nature of the church as the family of God. Each family member, in accord with their own role, exercises the baptismal priesthood and contributes towards making the family a community of grace and of prayer, a school of human and Christian virtue, the place where the faith is first proclaimed." End quote. That's what it is, a place of prayer, a place of communion, a place where virtue is taught. Now, sadly, very often our pre-Cana conferences, when they have, they're much more concerned about helping people to balance their checkbook, and I'm all for balancing checkbook, or ensuring psychological health, than they are talking about the sacramental nature of marriage. And this fact, I think that we don't talk enough about the sacramental nature of marriage, contributes to the secularization of Christian marriage that we're seeing today. If we, as a church, and that's it, not just the Pope, but bishops, but everybody, as laity, as married couples, as grandparents. If we don't speak clearly and emphasize the centrality of this great sacrament, who's going to do it? Who will do it if we don't? Sadly, I would submit that even a noble pagan like Plato had a more elevated sense of the dignity of marriage than most contemporary Christian couples. And I say that with sadness. Plato spoke of marriage, and this is his quote, the need that every man feels of clinging to the eternal life of nature by leaving behind him children's children who may minister to the gods in his stead. Isn't that beautiful? 
See what's contained in that? We're now living in a post-Christian age which because we've lost the supernatural vision of grace is now becoming blind even to the natural order of things that was visible to Plato writing four centuries before the coming of Christ. Where did we go wrong? In so many ways we have forgotten the child. We've forgotten our own children. A generation ago, 80% of children grew up in families with both biological parents. Today, in America, fewer than half will. Less than 50%. The notion of the Catholic family as a domestic church can be traced back to the teachings of Christ. We've got to start, start talking less about church politics and more about Jesus Christ. We've got to get back to him. The Second Vatican Council taught us that when he recreates the human person, he fully reveals to us who we are as human beings. He also creates marriage and creates family in a new way and reveals their fullest identity. The importance of the family as a domestic church is revealed by Christ. The first thing we want to notice is St. Paul reminds us all, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, you can probably finish it, right? born of a woman. When the creator enters creation, he does so by entering into a family. That alone should tell us so much about how important the family is for us. Our Lord could have come in many different ways, but he chose to come through the family. Think about it. He's on the planet for 33 years. 30 of the 33 years are spent in his home in Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and his relatives. That alone should tell us how important those family bonds and family ties are. Faith was at the center of his family's life. If you look to the Gospel of Luke, who tells us so much about the infancy in his infancy narrative, we find what? Every year, they went up to Jerusalem every single year, never missed it, to celebrate the Passover. This tells us what about the Holy Family? The intense devotion that they had. God was central to their lives. <laughs> Literally, God was the center of their life. That's why I sometimes feel sorry for St. Joseph. Comes down to get his morning coffee and he's got the Immaculate Conception waiting for him and God, you know. <laughs> no wonder he doesn't say much in the Gospel, you know. <laughs> What are you saying? How's it going, guys? You know. <laughs> anyway, but they give us the example of how things should be. We need to have a passion for God. Our children need to see in our lives a passion and love for God. Throughout his public ministry, our Lord continually showed concern for the family. In this powerful and yet tender love, one of Pope Francis's favorite words, the tenderness of Christ, this tender love that he had for children. How many times did Christ reach out with that loving heart of his and embrace children and bless them? The love he had for children must have been widely known because there was an approachability in our Lord that other rabbis did not have. He was not just a first century Jew, a marginal rabbi or something like that. Mothers long to bring their babes to him because he was so approachable so that he would just touch them or bless them. Remember when the disciples tried to stop the mothers from bringing their kids, he rebukes them. He says, hinder them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Little children, what a love he had for the innocence of children. Remember when he enters Jerusalem in triumph on Palm Sunday, it's the little children who are making the sweet hosannas ring, right? Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings you have perfected praise. And how he goes on to defend the innocence of children. Woe unto those who scandalize one of these little ones. Then he goes on to speak of millstones and being cast into the depths of the sea. Then he immediately in the gospel, after talking about scandal, speaks of the evil of divorce and forbids this destructive assault upon the family. How he longed throughout his life and ministry to heal the brokenness of families. What's his most beautiful parable? I think it's the prodigal son. 
which is what? It's the story of a broken, wounded relationship between a father and the son and the beauty of a deep and profound reconciliation. Think of all those healings that are referred to throughout the gospel. Most of the time, those are parents, those are moms and dads who are bringing their sons and daughters to be healed by Jesus. And he cured them all. He healed them all. Think of what it meant to him to be able to raise Lazarus of Bethany and then give the brother back to Martha and Mary after he wept with them. Or think of the beautiful scene of raising the only son of the widow of name where he undoubtedly saw in her tears the tears of his own mother, who was a widow, who was going to lose her only son as well, and why he gives the son back to the mother, and how that must have moved his sacred heart. We also need to reflect upon the inspired teaching of St. Paul. You know, a lot of weddings you have this read, and sometimes they delete a verse, but they shouldn't. Um, in his great letter to the Ephesians, where he talks about marriage and family, we have to remember the very first thing that he says to husband and wives in the letter to the Ephesians. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another. There is a mutual subjection. Anyone who's married knows that's absolutely the case. There is a, that's why you argue. There is a mutual subjection between the man and the woman. One should not be thinking, who's the boss? Who's on top? Who's the most important? It's a, it's a challenge to serve each other. Only after that does he go on to say, let wives be subject to their husbands as to the Lord because the husband is head of the wife. There is a structure. Just as Christ is head of the church being himself the savior of the body. But you also have to observe in that passage, he spends a lot more time working with the men than he does with the women. Because we're dumber, we're slower to learn, all right? That's why he, right, at, right after that, what does he say? Husbands, love your wives. Like, duh, all right? <laughs> love your wives. It's because women are more naturally virtuous. They do not have to be told to love their husbands, all right? They're naturally more loving. They are naturally more giving. Even St. Thomas Aquinas observed that because motherhood gives them that. There's nothing more self-giving and more sacrificial than being a mother. All right? So he then tells the men, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and delivered himself up for her. So what he's telling the men is you've got to love them just like Christ loved. That means serving. That means laying your life down being willing to die for them. There's no machismo here. There's no male chauvinism in this teaching at all. It is a clear, profound, Christocentric teaching. And he even continues instructing the husbands on, his, on their obligation of being a soulmate, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her in the bath of water by means of the word. As a matter of fact, he's charging men who tend to be weaker on religious matters, saying essentially, your job is to help your wife on the journey towards holiness. And then he concludes, even thus ought husbands also to love their wives as their own bodies, their own flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself. And why is that? Because they're no longer two. They are one. So they're one body. In loving your wife, you're loving your very self, the reflex of your own person. That's why in a good marriage, you don't know where you end and she begins. They become one. In the words of St. Paul, the couples, married couples need to hear this. This is a magnum sacramentum. This is a great mystery. It will not only symbolize, it will participate in the love of Christ for his church. We have spent so much time in recent years concentrating on the role of women that we're now sadly neglecting the male role. It's important to remember that St. John Paul the Great taught in Familius Consortio, and I give you a quote here. Listen to what he says. Above all, I mean, that means most importantly, above all, where social and cultural conditions so easily encourage a father to be less concerned with his family. Efforts must be made to restore socially the conviction that the place and task of the father in and for the family is unique 
and of irreplaceable importance. Bet you haven't heard that for a while. Very important to reflect upon. The two sexes are made for each other, not in opposition, not to be torn apart, made for each other. They complement each other and cannot be fully understood apart from each other. Many in our confused world tend to deny the importance of the father's role, but statistics, boy, do they bear this all out. Today, for example, in the United States, five out of 10 children go to bed in a home where there's no father present. 50%, is any wonder 50% of our marriages are ending in divorce? Statistics, 60% of rapists, 72% of adolescent murders, over 70% of prison inmates did not have a dad in their home. We gotta talk about that. When sociological data is supporting the teaching of the church, we need to communicate this effectively. And the impact on young women when there's no father, 164% more likely to have a child out of wedlock, 111% more likely to have children as teenagers, and 92% of those women are more likely to have their marriage end in divorce as well. Men, <laughs> fathers are important. We do li live in this age where we've got to start restating the obvious again. It's very clear that the presence of a mom and a dad in the home is essential for a child's psychological help, their self-esteem, even their educational attainment, and to foster virtuous behavior. And part of the problem, we've had the explosion now of the whole biotechnological world, which is creating all sorts of problems. And tragically, most of the time involves a horrible manipulation and degradation of human life. In an article which I saved and I would like to share with you today, written by Katrina Clark, the article was entitled, Who's Your Daddy? She talks about the fact that her father was an anonymous sperm donor. And I want to share this with you because she gets angered at what has happened in her life. And this is a quote from this article. Secular Press, Washington Post. You can read it for penance, all right. <laughs> if I was Pope, I'd get a partial indulgence given for anyone who reads the Washington Post. A plenary for the New York Times, all right. <laughs> it's not a sin to laugh at that, I think. Anyway, but she, listen to what she has to say. I was angry at the idea that where donor conception is concerned, everyone focuses on the parents, the adults who can make choices about their lives. The recipient gets sympathy for wanting to have a child. The donor gets a guarantee of anonymity and absolution from any responsibility for the offspring of his donation. As long as these adults are happy, then donor conception is a success, right? Not so. The children born of these transactions are people too. And she continues, those of us in the first documented generation of donor babies conceived in the late 1980s and early 90s, when sperm banks became more common, are coming of age. And we have something to say. And I'm here to tell you that emotionally, many of us are not keeping up. We didn't ask to be born into this situation with its limitations and confusion. It's hypocritical of parents and medical professionals to assume that biological roots don't matter to the products of the Syrobank's service when the longing for a biological relationship is what brings customers into the banks in the first place. We offspring are recognizing the right that was stripped of us at birth, the right to know who both our parents are and we are ready to reclaim it. Then she concludes, growing up, it didn't matter that I didn't have a dad, or at least that's what I told myself. Just sometimes when I was small, I would daydream about a tall, lean man picking me up and swinging me around in the front yard. A manly man melting at the touch of his little girl. I wouldn't have minded if he weren't around all the time, as long as I could have the sweet moments of reuniting with his strong arms and hearty laugh. My daydreams always ended abruptly 
I knew I would never have a dad. As a coping mechanism, I used to think that he was dead. That made it easier. End quote. Fathers are necessary. They're so necessary. And if fathers are necessary, mothers are. And so is motherhood. St. John Paul the Great observed in his beautiful letter on women, the dignity of women, and I quote, because no one ever quotes this anymore. There are tasks in which women are irreplaceable. Women must strengthen precisely what is properly, characteristically, and indispensably theirs, like motherhood. Woman's vocation to motherhood is a burning issue today, he writes. We must diligently work so that the dignity of this vocation is not eliminated from culture. To concentrate on woman's main role as wife and mother is to place her, he says, at the heart of the family. Her irreplaceable role must be appreciated and recognized as such and should go together with the very essence of her womanhood. A mother's dedication to her home and to her children is the loftiest role she can carry out. Without the mother, he says, there is no home, no family, no country, even no church. Since conjugal love reveals this beautiful mystery of the love between Christ and his church, when we're talking to a young couple about marriage, the husband must recognize he has to be the imago Christi. He must be the image of Christ to his wife and to his children, just as the wife must become the imago ecclesia, the image of the church. The husband and his love for the wife and children should reveal the face of Christ, just as the mother in the heart of the home has to reveal this loving maternity of Holy Mother Church. And this is one of the reasons why so many of the fathers wrote so beautifully about marriage. And this is so important for us to reflect upon today. And that's why a generation ago, divorce used to be regarded as a scandal, because people understood this great union and how sacred it was. And we've lost our sense of scandal because we've lost the sense of the supernatural nature of this sacrament. And the result is divorce has skyrocketed. And we have to recognize that a natural love is not enough to keep spouses together today. This hostile culture which mocks in music and in television and film, chastity and the sanctity of marriage is weakening this conjugal bond. This conjugal bond has to be caught up in the love of Christ if it's not going to turn on itself and become destructive. And sadly, I think we seldom teach this. We seldom communicate this. I myself recall in my own home, which was very blessed, I had great folks, they used to get us up at 6.30 in the morning to pray the rosary. We didn't like it, but we did it, 6.30 in the morning. I remember my dad, good guy, not overly pious, but every, you know, he'd, you know, he'd get up at 7, go to work, get home at 9 o'clock, and every time he came home, even before he'd get his dinner, he'd walk up the stairs, he'd kneel by our bedside, and we would say night prayers with us. I mean, that's an amazing gift. If we had to serve 6.30 Mass, back when that 6.30 Mass was like a 15-minute experience, they would get us and they would always take us to serve that 6.30 Mass. And I remember how my mom and dad would take us to Mass every Sunday, always 8.30 because of the fast back then. You wanted to get to Mass so you could go eat, you know. But uh, you would, they would always take us to that. And I remember every Sunday, filing in the pew, my mom wearing sort of a, a gorgeous hat that was very distracting. We'd make because, you know, you, you had your heads covered back then, you know. And then I'd look down, I'd see my dad, and my dad get in the pew, and then I'd see him hit the knees, and he'd look towards where that red light was flickering, the sanctuary where Christ was present, and I'd see him just bow his head in prayer and adoration. <sighs> He didn't have to say a lot. I mean, just by watching him, I knew what was really important in life. And uh, the only way that our popes appeal to the family to, to be what it really is supposed to be is going to be achieved is if the beauty of Catholic teaching, as it's found in Casti Canubi, in Humane Vitae, in Familius Consortio, yes, in Amoris Laetitiae as well, and the timeless teaching of the magisterium is transmitted effectively to all of our families.
Because remember what the church is supposed to be. Vatican I and De Filius said that the church is like a great standard raised up for the nations. Vatican II, in its decree on the church, entitled it Lumen Gentium, a light to the nations. And too many times we're taking this light and hiding it in a bushel basket. We need to stand together with our fellow Catholics and let this light shine out in our homes, in our beloved country, in our world. Pope Pius XI, one of my favorite popes, Paparati, stated in Casti Canubi, it was very, very simple. If marriage is to be restored to its normal condition, what do we have to do? Two things. Meditate, number one, on the divine plan concerning it. And secondly, endeavor to shape our conduct accordingly. <laughs> Pretty simple. In other words, unless the teaching of the church is offered in its full integrity, we're shutting ourselves off from these channels, great channels of grace. One of my great stories about Pius X, when he was first made a bishop, he was proudly showing his Episcopal ring to his mother, and his mom, as only an Italian mama could do, said, Remember Giuseppe, there would be no ring on your finger if it was not for this ring on my finger. <laughs> And as the cowardly lion said in Wizard of Oz, ain't it the truth, ain't it the truth, <laughs> all right. But too often, we're kind of like the disciples who say this saying is hard, who can bear it? And we end up listening to surveys and, and Gallup polls and the great herd of independent thinkers in the media who are always saying the same thing. Now, since the culture is so much trying to pull our kids away from us and is hostile, there are certain things we can do as parents and also as grandparents. With the brokenness in so many families, the role of grandparents has now become extremely important. One of the whole sessions when I served on the Pontifical Council for the Family was devoted completely at the request of Pope Benedict to grandparents and the important role that grandparents must assume in today's society. We do need to recall that we're in a state of war. We have three enemies that are always attacking us, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're always going after marriage and the family. It's also important to remember there is no such thing as the perfect family. Outside of the whole family, there is no perfect family. Everyone's, you know, dysfunctional. Well, you know, every family is partially dysfunctional, right? I mean, let's be honest. There's wounding everywhere, even in good families. But I do think there are certain things that we can look at, that we can follow and possibly do in the home. And I would share with you some of the things that I have learned today that I think have worked well. But every family has to find its own way. And I have seven things to give you something concrete to sort of go with. Most of them you probably already know, but I just think it's good to reflect and try to realize this again. One of the big things is I would strongly encourage for grandparents and parents and families is enthronement of the sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary in the home. If you can get a priest to come and say mass in your home, it is one of the greatest ways to impress upon a family that they are a church in miniature. Because in the ritual, the father leads prayer, the mother reads the gospel. There are blessings of the children, blessings of the grandchildren by the mom and the dad. And it, it can really transform it. And you take an image that you like of the sacred heart and immaculate heart, and you put them up in a prominent spot in your home. And you acknowledge, in this house, Christ is king and we serve him. And the enthronement can have a profound impact. After you do the enthronement, have a celebration, have a party, invite your family, relatives, neighbors in the neighborhood if you're close to them. Let them see what a Catholic family is like. It is a great way to evangelize. And then renew that consecration on First Fridays or with an annual event where you throw a party and have a celebration. Second thing, after the home enthronement, Parental prayer. Kids must see their parents praying together. It's a great thing for kids to see mom and dad praying together, kneeling, praying together as a couple. Aristotle once said, friendship needs proximity. How can we tell our children that we really love Christ if they don't see us speaking to him frequently? I don't mean just on Sunday. It's great to go to Sunday. I've got to do that. I understand. But speaking whenever possible, turning in prayer together. And this is so important because why? We love him. 
And if you really love someone and the love is really authentic, you want to speak with that person frequently. That's why when teenagers get all goo goo ga in love, they're on their phone all the time. They're texting all the time. You say, what are you talking about? I don't know. You know I mean, they don't know. But what they realize, they want to be present with the one they love, all right? And so if we really love them, they need to see that we want to be present with him too and we talk to them. And so that's so important. We love our Lord and our children need to see that. Third thing, very simple, starting the day with the old morning offering. Gather in front of the image of the Sacred Heart. Get all the kids together. Before dad goes off to work, the kids go off to school, say a morning offering where prayers, works, joys, and sufferings are all given to him. And then with a special prayer for each one present there. And special intentions as well. If there's a soccer game that day, or a big test, or there's a play, or there's some project, or someone's traveling, that you pray for one another. Those are moments that bring eternity into time in a concrete way where everyone is linked together, and that's so important. Fourth thing, family rosary as an oasis, a time of quiet, maybe before bedtime with the children. Whatever the family schedule is, you decide it, but having that time of the family rosary. When a lot of our kids were young, we'd have kids bring out the statue of Blessed Mother, put it there, light candles, we'd put Gregorian chant on softly in the background, but everybody had a job. So it wasn't like passive. Everybody had their little job to kind of get ready, and it was a quiet time, and the rhythm of those prayers can be so beautiful. And if someone has difficulty with the repetition, do the scriptural rosary, where there's a scriptural verse accompanying each Hail Mary. That can be a great way to make it a little more concrete for children, or maybe do that on Sundays to make Sunday rosary special. Fifth thing, divine office if you can, especially the praying of Sunday Vespers. There's a beautiful book published by Patmos that has Sunday Vespers for every Sunday. No ribbons changing, no flips. You just turn to the page and turn to the next page and, and all the prayers are right there. But what a great way to sanctify Sunday and make it the Lord's Day. But praying the divine office is so important. And having those family celebrations being tied into the liturgical year, times of fasting, times of penance, times of feasting, times of joy. All of those are important. Another thing, never ever do not do grace before meals. And as Pope Francis said very powerfully, especially when you're out in public, are we really that ashamed to thank God for a good meal at Applebee's or at Cracker Barrel or wherever we might be? Why not bear witness in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Why not? A simple thing like saying grace, that you're not ashamed of the fact that you're a Catholic. You know, sometimes it seems like Catholic evangelization can be summed up by Mark chapter 1, verse 48, where Jesus said, see that you tell no one. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Another thing, of course, I think, turn off the television, the devil's tabernacle, turn off the TV. If you're at a dinner, at a meal with your family, never have the TV on unless it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. No, I'm just kidding. Ne never, have, never have the TV on, all right? Also, if it's a kid's feast day, it's his birthday. Make it special. Bake him something to take to school, like it's his name day or saint's day. Bring cupcakes. Michelle Obama might not like that, but bring cupcakes to school. And you know what can happen then? Someone else can go, why are you doing this? Oh, it's my feast day. Oh, what's your name? Peter? Yeah, it's the feast day of St. Peter today. You know, I'm named after Peter Chanel or whatever the case might be. Great way to evangelize with food. All right. If possible, take the one child to Mass that day on his name day or the anniversary of his baptismal day or his feast day or birthday. Do something like that. You know, blessing the Christmas tree. There's so many things. The straw in the manger, you know, for good deeds. Putting the little straw to get ready for baby Jesus to come. All of these are so important. The last thing I would mention is the importance of Sunday. John Paul the Great wrote an entire letter to the importance of Sunday. He said, we will never win the culture war until we reclaim Sunday. And that's a day where you shouldn't shop. All right? Maybe have one day where the smartphone is put down and not used at all. How about a fast from our phone for one day? You're going to put it in a basket and not... The world will continue on, I can assure you. But to have one day where you're not going to pull up a smartphone at a table and look at it. All right? But having some discipline in terms of 
technology and all of those things so that Sunday can really be a day of leisure. Dressing up for Sunday Mass. My kids saw me putting the suit on today. Oh, this must be important. Something big's going on. Yeah. Well, you know, Sunday Mass is pretty big. You're going to go be receiving our Lord. So giving that sense of dignity and the importance there. So, in conclusion, the domestic church is truly a great school of love. I have been very deeply blessed, if I could share a personal anecdote with you, in my own home. I've been living for 42 years. <laughs> Sorry, I get emotional, but anyway. With a woman who has really taught me what it means to love. Some years ago, we had a horrible situation we went through where our youngest son, without any warning at all, was taken by a violent seizure and appeared to be having possibly a heart attack or some type of severe stroke of some kind. And he fell down to the floor and was just shaking violently with his whole body contorted. We didn't know why. We didn't know what was happening. And suddenly began to lose consciousness. And the horror seized our hearts that we might actually be losing our son at this moment. And it was at that moment that I heard the spontaneous pleading cry of a mother who was embracing her son saying, stay with me, stay with me. And then looking at him and looking up, please, please take me, not him. Take me, not him. Our son is fine, by the way. But the power, the love, and the grace of that moment will live with me forever. All men by nature seek happiness, and to the extent that they find love in this life, they will be happy. The church is ever faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It has the basic roadmap. My plea today, the fruit of this, let us not deny our starving, errant world this map. All right? Let's not give them the husks of swine when they're meant to be in the Father's house. The words of Pope Francis, we are a field hospital. We have the map. We've got the medicine that alone leads to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for listening to me. Praise be Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you.